0: Casting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is Steven Rosenbaum, who's production-side visual effects supervisor of Masters of Air, which is streaming on Apple TV+. But a bit of a detour before we get in the heart of the podcast... Back at NAB in 2005, we were in Vegas and learned from a little birdie from Apple that they were going to add support for podcasting in iTunes. And so we spent the next couple months working on researching the infrastructure needed. And when Apple launched iTunes with podcasting in June, we also launched our first ever FX podcast. It was with Mike and he interviewed the team at Furious FX, covering the work at Mr. and work on Mr. and Mrs. Smith, obviously the original one. For the second podcast, I spoke with Mark Petit, talking quite a bit about the ill-fated toxic. But for me, it was our podcast in July that Mike did with Paul Franklin from DNEG, covering the work on Batman Begins. Listening to that podcast, I thought to myself, wow, maybe this podcasting thing has legs. This is a really cool conversation. I I suggest you listen to that. It's one of my favorite podcasts that we've ever done over the years. And I'm discussing this, because, as you'll hear, Mike mentions this is the 1,000th podcast that Mike has done, which is amazing. He's a great friend, and, yeah, I'm biased, but I think I'm also allowed to have, a, you know a lot of respect, tremendous amount of respect for him as well as the research and preparation he does, to really make the interviews a success. As listeners, you can't directly see this, but let me tell you that uh, over the years, uh, I certainly have seen it, and I feel his hard work makes Mike one of the best interviews out there in any medium. But I'd honestly be remiss if I didn't get a shout out to those of us who've helped us over the years. You know, you hear Mike and I's voice on the podcast, including FX Sky TV and such, but the reality is we've had a wonderful team and support from others that have helped make this milestone possible. Without them, I don't think we would have made it here. In fact, I know we wouldn't have made it here. It's much more than either Mike or I. For starters, as luck would have it, returning to edit this podcast is Matt Graham, a brilliant guy who worked with us for years at FXPHD. So thanks, Matt, for helping us out in a pinch. And the normal editor is James Shen, who works with Mike in Sydney and has been with FXPHD since our launch, and Jimmy's a rock star. Those two were super instrumental in getting FX Guide TV launched and produced. And in that vein, I'll give a shout out to Angie as well. In addition, we've had the help of people like Mark Descoli, Ryan Pribble, Kristen Martin, Todd Scholten... Ross Woods, Henry Birdseye, who's the announcer you hear at the beginning of this podcast, as well as others. And, of course, our good friend Jeff Huser, who, as the biggest Apple fanboy I ever met, Mike is a close second, by the way, he was so psyched about doing the first podcast, and uh, we miss you, brother. And finally, thanks to all the guests who've been kind enough to spend time chatting with us over the years, as well as the producers who corralled them for us. It's your work on the films and TV shows and other things that makes a podcast interesting. So thank you very much. Well, that's enough about us. I know it's a bit self-indulgent, but I thought with the mention of the milestone, it was worth taking the time to give a thanks to those who've helped us over the years. And now onto the podcast. It's Mike Seymour chatting with Stephen Rosenbaum. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it.
0: Glad to be here. I want to tell you just by way of nothing, that in fact, this is the 1000th podcast that I've done on FX Guide. So I'm very <laughs> glad to have you as my guest. Um, there are other podcasts that I wasn't involved in. That's not all the podcasts we've ever done. But for me personally, this is the 1000th one that I've done. So I couldn't think of anyone nicer to have a chat with. So thank you. Uh,
2: it's very kind of you. So I, I do have to ask, Mike. So we've known each other for probably 20 years. And why has it taken one thousand podcast 1000 to talk to me, huh? What's
0: what's the deal with that? See, uh, <laughs> that's my fault. I apologise. I so, okay, you've opened <laughs> okay. the door. No, no, you seriously, you've opened the door because honestly, like you were supervisor on so many films that I loved. Right, <laughs> apart from films that you were like on that were brilliant, um, like Death Becomes a Forest Gump. But you were supervisor on Contact, which is one of my all-time favourite films. Uh, you were also on did uh, amazing work on like a whole lot of films but also uh down at weta with iRobot and uh and of course avatar like i mean there's no excuse for not having you on sooner i am <laughs> shamed by that
2: no i, I you, you, the the correct response was you were saving number 1000 for the for, for me right you were you were you were you were uh waiting for that time
0: yeah, I said I'm. I'm sorry, Stephen. Uh, I know Spielberg carries a lot of weight out there in the industry, but I, I just can't be talking to you. And and I, I honestly, Cameron, I'm sorry, mate, but like, yeah, I'm talking to Stephen. Um, so we're here to talk about Masters of the Air, which mm. is just like presses every one of my happy buttons because <laughs> I thought uh, Band of Brothers was really good. I like anything that's a historically um, respectful and a true story because I think that just makes anything that you're watching more interesting. And then the show itself is just uh phenomenally engaging. Um so I've been lucky enough to see a preview. We're not going to give out any spoilers. We're only going to talk about stuff that um that you could have seen always in a trailer. But yeah, it's every episode cracking stuff. So congratulations, just I loved this show.
2: I appreciate that. Yeah we we made an effort from the very beginning to try to be faithful. Both historically and technically, so that was a that was a mandate from the beginning with all the directors, the showrunner Gary Getzman, and uh, Kirk Sadusky, who's one of the Saduski, who's one of the uh, producers on the show for Playtone, uh, that we try to adhere to the accuracy. And of course, John Orloff, who was the the writer on the show, um, he provided a, a bible for us that was you know just this tome of all the information we could ever want from not just the stories of the characters but all the technical details that we needed to know uh, so it was we we were very fortunate in this respect going into the show with a lot of a lot of research
0: I think visual authenticity is obviously important for many reasons but also just as a viewer I love finding out the machinations and the details behind that which you kind of know I mean clearly you know that People flew bombing runs in the Second World War, right? What mm-hmm. you don't know is the sort of level of detail that went into actually taking off, or, or for that matter, like you know what it was like to uh, to survive a flak.ing Is it flak a flak attack or flacking? I don't know what's the correct verb there for um, the flak that goes up when they're coming in before um, uh, the flak breaks off and the fighters start attacking the bombers. I mean that stuff is just. I was. I kept on. <laughs> everyone in the room was watching it with me, but I kept on pointing at it and look at the wing. Look how much that's been ripped up. Look at like, good lord! It just the uh, yeah. So it was very, very uh, faithfully done. The question, of course, is given how well you did it, how much of it was done with visual effects and how much was done uh, practically. And of course, much of it must have been visual effects because you wouldn't be risking people's lives. But um i guess yeah. when you came on the project was there a mandate to do as much as you could in camera i presume there was
2: there there was um you know i mean we we had a bit of a conundrum going in because you know these the b17s are you know now what 70 80 years old um and there are still some flight worthy b17s out there um it, you know we we had you know, some of the movies that had gone before, The Memphis Bells and and so forth. Um, there was a great documentary called uh, uh, The Cold Blue, or I think it was called The Cold Blue. I have to look that up. But um, anyway, it was HBO special. It was quite quite well done, but it was all documentary footage. Um, we, we contemplated, you know, using B, real B-17s, but the reality, it just wasn't pragmatic. Um, in the end, um, what we decided to do was build two full-scale replica models. Um, there was a company in London that got a hold of the original drawings, uh, the original Boeing drawings, and they they created right down to the rivet um, precise duplicate models of the B seventeen. Two models of them. One was um, had electric motors strapped to the wheels, and it could it could taxi around and and navigate a, a hard stand but the other was really just sort of background for static shots if you know you had uh, airmen standing against it as a backdrop um, but for the most part beyond using those two models um for shots where they're taxing um you know pulling out of the hard stand right, down right, uh, moving down the runway and then taking off and anything in the air was all all cg um, I, it's a little disappointing to me. Uh, You know, again, I, I like to, you know, my style is to work with uh, intercutting with real um, planes if I could, but um, it just wasn't practical. And that too, I mean, you know, I, I've been reading some of the comments online, you know, why, you know, like a Memphis bell, I think they had five real planes and so forth. But if you really think about the show, you know, nine episodes, which is effectively in terms of the scope and complexity of the work, it was really about about five hours of, air footage Um, to be able to rehearse you know choreograph the actions and rehearse whether you're on the ground or in the air and shoot that practically reset for another take and do it again you're you're talking about months and months of footage that you'd have to shoot um that again in it just wasn't practical for our schedule and if you also have to consider that we were in england you know, where the weather changes every 10 minutes, you know, getting the consistency of the look of the lighting and, you know, the, all the other, you know, battle action that needed to happen around it, we could certainly complement it. But it just seemed like, you know, all the all the variables were pointing towards we should do this with CG.
0: Yeah, I mean, apart from anything else, the pivotal points, plot points, that these planes fly in formation. So we're not talking about, i like, if right. you could have had, Five that wouldn't have been enough right there are shots even you can see in the trailer where there are like many many more um planes there did you do any aerial footage where you shot another plane and then replaced it um or was it done like in other words you were using the plate effectively but superimposing a plane in or was it all done from um from computer graphics
2: all cg so um we would do um you know extensive boards and then we would previs everything Um, and those, that previs was used, um, we'll get into the discussion about, you know, how we shot the interior, um, plane shots against an LED wall, but the, the, for the most part, it served as a guide for our vendors to, to choreograph the action, um, as all computer generated elements.
0: So to that end, clearly, I mean, this was a, uh, you know, a, a plot point in other films, you need clouds in the sky quite often Mm. to actually Mm. kind of get any sense of where planes are and what they're doing but also they're flying through weather which is important and um the the character of the clouds becomes to me its own character like it's yeah that the cloud is sort of giving us like a subtext of what the scene is about quite often. Can you talk about like just styling those cloud elements? I mean, it sounds really simple in one sense, but like there must've been both volumetrically complex and just a lot of work to get right.
2: Yeah, it, and you hit the the right term in terms of volumetric work. It was, you know, that for those who don't know about volumetric um, rendering and specifically like cloud elements, it needs to, light needs to pass through it, interact with it. Uh, planes need to pass through it, uh, interact with it. But just to your original point, it it needs to be stylistically um, designed to suit the scene of the moment. So if you, I think most people now have seen the first episode, it, it's, you know, they had a, notoriously, they had bad weather um, and visibility was almost none. And so they, you know, how to, how to, be able to control the look of those clouds uh, so that you're selling um, dense cloud coverage, minimal visibility, but yet still see a formation of planes and understand where everybody's situated and and the action, uh, you're able to follow the action. It was definitely uh, something that we we spent a lot of time upfront developing with our vendors, getting the look of that cloud and being able to to, but as you say, as a character, being able to get it to perform uh, like we wanted so that it it could help support the story.
0: I mean, there is a lot of really interesting light play in those clouds. Mm. Um, in the title sequence, I think they take some of your shots and kind of enhance the chroma of them. They seem like richer and and yeah. more colourful. But what I was impressed with in the main body of the material is just getting that sense of clouds without just everything being god rays and kind of ridiculously cinematically over the top Um, and yet you know it is beautiful and it is uh uh spectacular the grading of those like i'm just curious like how far did did you get before you were handing over to grade them and because i mean there's a lot of subtlety and nuance in the way the light is playing in those clouds and i Hmm. imagine that that would have been a real aspect in terms of uh finishing the, the color grade
2: yeah we we uh tried to finish as much as we could at the vendor um uh there was some grading in di after the fact uh some of which i was involved with some not um but for the most part um, we knew we used the clouds um to help us focus the action you know help us understand uh, that it was you know what the weather conditions were but not only help us frame Uh, where the action, where the viewer should be looking. Um, And from that, you know, there's a lot of light play that comes into that, you know, understanding how the lights move through the clouds, um, but are not distracting, but actually focusing uh, the the viewer's eye. Uh, So in that sense, it was was an editorial tool, uh, as well as just a visual tool.
0: And the other thing that's closely related to this is what I'm going to call the vapor trails. I don't know whether that's the right term, but it's the contrast, lines yeah. that come contrast. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, they're really significant because quite often, especially when it's uh, fighters attacking uh, um, the bombers, you're not really reading the fighters so much as you are reading the contrails. And that's what gives you an overwhelming sense of, Oh my God, this is a uh, serious peril because there are so many of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, is the, again that's but that's sort of like sort of everything because it kind of hangs in the air, but it's also a, a line of action effectively, which makes it kind of a blocking device as much as it is a visual device. I wonder if you could talk about those.
2: Yeah, I've, I'm glad you picked up on that because we we made a concerted effort to to use the contrails much like uh, an embellishment to the clouds, um, whereas the clouds would sort of set the overall framing of the shot, the look, uh, the scope, if you would. Whereas the contrails, we found like particularly with the German fighters, they move so quickly. Or if we saw a wide shot even of the B-17 formations, you know, it, it was hard to follow where the action was. Uh, you know, typically the B-17s were on a linear path and they were going towards their IP. Um, the the German fighters were coming from every which way. and But they were specs traveling, you know, sometimes 400 or 500 miles an hour, uh, depending Um and they were very hard to find uh, within the clouds, to, to, if, you, if you didn't have those contrails. So we found that this was sort of a way again to help the viewer focus on where the action, sh- uh, where they should look at the action. So you'd see these swirls of contrails, and you could immediately follow that line right down to the fighter. Whereas if without them, you would they would just be black specks, and for the most part, you would the audience would miss most of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, which is what was so frightening i guess for the guys working the guns right which is how hard it was to actually see the middle and hit them yeah um it's interesting can i, can also I, make, just, a, can
2: I make a note about that too go. that just like there's i think it's one thing people don't understand aside from just the the vastness of the of being up in that space with all the clouds and you know these tiny specks but the speed is something that's sort of intangible uh it it you're traveling in a you're in a B17 you're traveling at 180 miles an hour one direction sometimes 200 miles an hour depending but cruising speeds around 180 miles an hour for a B17 if you have a german fighter coming at you say let's just say for maths purposes 320 miles an hour the other way you effectively have a combined airspeed of 500 miles an hour so being able to to for a, you know a waist gunner to spot that fighter is goes by in just a quick blink of an eye if you would um so for our purposes again that that's where the contrails really helped us and we did embellish by adding more fighters into s- shots so you could you could see more substantive action in the, in the, in any given shot but um for the most well, part it's kind really, of like you
0: yeah, yeah it's like you read my mind then because that's what i was going to discuss the, yeah. the speed thing because it seemed to me that in some sense you have these incredibly slow shots because you're traveling at the same speed as the B 17. Yeah. And so it's a very effectively slow shot because the B 17 doesn't do much as it's just flying in formation. And if you're mm-hmm. flying with it, then it's all, almost feels like a static shot given how wide it is. Yeah. And by contrast, you then have these shots from the point of view of the gunners where it's clearly looking out a side window or whatever. And it's so fast that it could be completely disorientated. Now, sometimes I think visually, the director wanted me to feel overwhelmed. Like I mean mm. that in a positive way, mm. but there's also this sense that you don't want the audience kind of lost of what am I looking at? And I just thought that was amazing to be doing these visual effects that played in what is almost like, well, I know you did use some actual slow motion, but leave that aside for a second. But it's like the shots are playing out as slow wide shots. And then they're suddenly playing out as these incredibly fast, Uh, action shots and then playing all those together and not having that being confusing. I mean, uh, there's like a different set of skills. And for that matter, as I say, blocking and framing that would be required.
2: Yeah. That was, that was again, something I really wanted to, to stick with. I have a, I have a style in which I compose action. um, And that is I've I've learned this from actually from Steven Spielberg and, and, and Jim Cameron, certainly uh, which is grounding the camera. So you, I think for that matter, the more you're immersed within that action, that moment of time with the actor, you know, the character or the, you know, the plane, if you're outside attached to the plane, um, you're going to experience the, the the physics of the moment more realistically and more, um, you're going to accept that moment uh, better in the sense of not having um something fly by at a million miles an hour and lose it, or conversely have a magic camera that's flying out in space, trying to just cover all the action and panning and tilting as if you were on a hypersonic helicopter. Um, you, the audience is gonna lose, be lost with following the action, but it's also, um, it's gonna basically betray the laws of physics in the sense, and lose the sense of reality. So for me, it's all about grounding. The action and and having those moments as you were saying where you're inside the plane itself you're seeing the speed at which these planes are flying past jumping outside to what i call a geography shot just to remind the audience where we're at moving slower just it just for a beat um is i think just really an editorial trick just to help us not get lost along the way
0: i actually thought point of view was a really interesting construct in the entire season because what a serious because what you've got is you never you don't get like to jump into the cockpit of a german fighter plane right you don't get the, the the narrative allows me to get the point of view of someone that was bombed and i won't go into why that is but like characters experience themselves what it's like to be in a space that has been bombed or is being bombed right. but but it's never any other characters than our hero characters. It's not like we just jump to a German point of view. We don't jump to a, like an English point of view. It's always from our character's point of view. Yeah. And so therefore this like really is underlining what you're saying in terms of that point of view from the planes, because I never felt like I was witnessing something that they wouldn't have somehow witnessed. And also, of course, that, as I say, plays to that sense of how vulnerable they were and also how confusing it was when the shit hits the fan proverbially, because it was yeah. like, can sign, yeah, it's it's true.
2: There there are a few shots where we sort of betrayed those rules, uh, but for the most part, we pretty much just tried to stay grounded and with with the action, um, at least in some sense of helping the audience follow them and and be part of their experience. And as you yeah, caught, I mean, it, which I was glad you said, actually, we we made a point of never going in a German plane. Um, yeah. That there, there were many requests. Can we jump over to the the german point of view and i and i didn't i didn't feel like that was the right way to go we want to be part of the experience with the airmen
0: i mean clearly you had shots like of wheels landing on tarmacs and stuff i'm not suggesting that it was all yeah. pov of, a, of an individual but yeah, yeah that it would have been very easy to just have the german point of view of approaching the um uh the formations of the uh b-17 and and yeah would have i'm sure been a nice shot it just it just didn't give the experience I think of, uh, of being there. So, so we've discussed what's going on. The other thing that's happening outside the cockpits when they're looking out are these tragic and I've got to say technically beautiful, uh, explosions of planes, planes being hit planes, um, going into various forms of dives, having been either having gear failure or explosions. Um, and the, text there is normally like people are looking to see whether there are parachutes and stuff so like these are somber moments but having said that from a technical point of view these are really gorgeous shots i'm not trying to glorify what happened but you know i mean like they are nicely handled can you talk to some of those uh explosion shots and how you sort of did those simulations of the uh planes coming apart sure um
2: it it started with Previs. so we for us um the way i like to build on a sequence, um, which is just start slowly and build up to some climactic moment, um, and then try to maintain that level uh, throughout. And it's 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 oftentimes on a you see in a lot of effects movies where you might have, you know, a, in this case, an explosion, and then everything calms down and the and the energy is lost. For me, my style is to to build to that climactic moment, but then try to keep that energy alive in the in the through the remainder of the sequence. So for us uh you know it was just methodically working through the choreography and previs and then um and then working with the vendors um a lot of those explosions were done by DNEG um and um they were done as physically accurate simulation work so we would build uh we had actual detailed models of of the B17s at different resolutions uh some were actually i think we had four different resolutions of them um and it depend, and we would use them in terms of distance and then some uh depending on whether or not they were going to be broken apart so as as a as a starting point any plane uh that blows up or collides with another plane uh would have multiple layers of animation it would have sort of its base layer flying motion or or, or um, descending motion, however it was, whatever the action was gonna be, it would have its moment where it starts to break apart. So it would have chunks of the plane that would be actually again, uh, animated, hand animated, broken apart. And then on top of that, they, we would add an embellishing physical simulation of all the the, the bits and um, of the plane breaking into tinier pieces and shredding basically. So it was, a, it was layers of animation um, to get that action. Um, I think for the most part, it, it worked pretty well. Um, there's a couple shots in there that I'm, you know, kind of, Oh, I wish we had another take on there, but, um, you know, (laughs) there,
0: how many, how many shots did you supervise overall? Uh, we had in the we,
2: we actually completed about 3,400 shots. Um,
0: so yeah,
2: I mean, for context, uh, for people, most visual effects heavy movies are 1500, maybe 2000 shots. Um, so it was it was quite undertaking. I think in the end, what ended up in the nine episodes was about thirty one hundred shots or something like that. So a good you know about three hundred ended up getting cut, uh, but we we completed about thirty
0: four hundred. And your primary vendors? You mentioned Deaneg already. Deaneg, Weta, um,
2: Whiskey Tree, uh, Rodeo Effects, uh, the Distillery Effects, uh, um, and. Ooh, I should know the others. Oh, um, East Side Effects, um, House of Good Vibes, which is a small little shop in Scotland. They're awesome. Um, uh, I know I'm forgetting others, but uh, yeah. I'll put them in the show notes. Those are the the primary ones. Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you assign those shots on any particular priority? Like, I mean, in other words, did you sort of say, well, this style of shot is, and if so, what was the, I don't know, the DNA of a house that made it, want to have those kind of shots
2: yeah for the most part um we originally and i think quite naively thought you know what makes most sense is to to do all the battle sequences with one vendor right if you think about what we were just talking about with explosions and so forth they're going to build a b-17 they're going to understand how to fly all the all the, di- the the subtle flight dynamics that go into making it look real and heavy um you know all the internal workings of the flaps and the the, the rigging of the, the, the turrets and right down to the cowl flaps and the bombs dropping and so forth. Um and then of course how how to make a plane blow up. It it thought, you know it, it, from a logical standpoint at least initially we thought, yeah, this should just be one person. So we're not, you know, complicating it. They'll they'll develop some efficiencies as they get down into the work and it and things will be look great um that was naive in the sense that we didn't expect the show to grow um as much as it did and certainly we didn't expect it to be as complicated as it was um originally it was about half the numbers of half that number of shots it was i think 1700 shots originally thought to be and um of which half of those shots were actually battle shots. So really, it was it was a more palatable thing for one vendor to, to uh, take on. Um, as we got deeper into our shoot, um, we realized that the you know the the sh- the show was growing more than fifty percent in terms of the battle work. Um, the complexity of the the battle work was getting um, m- more sophisticated and complex to undertake. And we just realized that we needed to to bring on other vendors. So the, the we we ended up the 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 vendors that ended up doing the battle scenes were, uh, DNEG, uh, Weta, Whiskey Tree, and Rodeo Effects. Uh, those were the four vendors who did the aerial sequences, and they did. You know, it was broken up mostly between episodes. So I think DNEG did like one, two, three, five, and then. Whiskey Tree, Weta did nine, um, and then Whiskey Tree and Rodeo FX did seven and eight. Actually, I think DNEG did some in seven as well. But anyway, there there it was. It was it became very complicated to manage um, as as you no doubt know. Sharing assets became an issue. Um, you know, you didn't. You know, again, going back to the logic of one vendor doing it, they, you know, you're suddenly, if you're going to multiple vendors, they're going to have to recreate and do their own development. And um, we we would definitely output uh, Alembic animations for the other vendors. So we had some sort of standard like propeller spinning and so forth where we could output, a, 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 you know, Alembic files and share those. But for the most part, the, the topologies and the, the rigs and ultimately the renders that they're using – are all unique to the uh, to each vendor. So, you know, a good a fair percentage of them needed to be reconstructed and developed.
0: Well, I'd like to switch our attention and segue from that into the uh, virtual production LED stage stuff, because mm. obviously that relates to the vendors, right? Because obviously that stuff has to be made before you want to shoot it. So was there a particular vendor that you're using for that? And maybe you could just walk through what that setup was.
2: Yeah, it was an interesting story. Um, when I was first contacted, um, they were originally going to do everything against blue screen, and, and there was a lot of discussion at the studio level. Oh, maybe we should leverage virtual production. Apple had not really gone down that path yet, um, and that's where I got the call. They they asked me to to assess, you know, whether or not this was viable, and so we went. I went through a couple weeks of basically describing the 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 positives and the negatives of, of doing an LED wall, um, the, you know, and, you know, for your listeners, it, just quickly, the, the traditional way of shooting, if you're inside a cockpit and you're framed on a pilot out the window, you would have a blue screen or green screen. And, you know, that was nice in terms of the, the VFX compositors having a, being able to extract a nice clean mat. If you think about the, the pilot against a window, they have their reflection, um, all the action that's going out there the motion blur and so forth it gave them a, a pretty clean mat to to then layer in the, the exterior environment behind the pilots um, The downside to it was that it it often led to flat performances um, in the sense that um, the actors didn't have an eyeline were it was usually some geek like me with a holding a tennis ball on a stick um, you know waving it saying you know, BF-109 flying right through here. Look here. And and they kind of look and their eyes are never in sync. And it's, you know, it's it's just kind of clunky old school style um, of being able to give them eye lines and compose action. Additionally, you know, the cameras didn't know where to look. They were always sort of guessing. You know, you'd say, well, it's going to start, it's going to enter from here at 11 o'clock and then it's going to by exit at seven o'clock over a frame and a half or a, a second and a half rather. And so you'd get, you know these whipped hands that you know were often not the right timing or you know they just needed often required reconstruction in addition the the directors didn't don't like it right because they don't they don't know what they're getting and then ultimately in the, when it gets into editorial they just have green screens um, and nothing to compose nothing to to cut to so uh, the idea of using an LED wall overcomes all that you're you're building a wall where you're Playing back content, uh, in our case, it, you know, it was b- battle content. So you could, they, the actors could see a BF one hundred and nine fly by and follow it as as it flew by. Um, you would get all the interactive light because the 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 screens were, you know, illuminating the actors correctly. If there was an explosion off the, the starboard window we would have an explosion on the wall and that would illuminate an orange light on them. So you, every, all the timing was there. And, you know, again, all the other issues are go away. Being able to compose the action was, was there. You could, you could see the action, the cameraman could see the action, the directors could direct the action and the actors could follow the action. So there was a lot of wins to it. The big downside was Roto. Um, You know, you're ultimately you're, you have to decide whether or not you're gonna work with the live with the content that's being played back on the wall or or replace it. So for our purposes, um there was there was over five hours of content that we had to play on these walls. Um not and not enough time to to bring it to what we call final pixel level. So um we made a decision, or I made a decision from the from the beginning that it was all gonna be just previous. Uh, played back Uh, you know we were doing all the previews, choreographing that and then um and then we would we would commit to rotoing the action now let me back up here because i kind of jumped ahead to your original question which is you know how did we get there we when we we moved to england to to start the show we were in um in these converted warehouses and they had nothing they 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 had no lighting grid they had no existing uh virtual production set up at all So I I hired uh, Lux Machina um, to design and develop those uh, the the volumes that we needed to build. They were we in the end we ended up with um, three and a half volumes. Um, uh, Three of them were full scale volumes, and one was actually a mobile volume. It was um, a couple of walls that we had on wheels that we could move around, um, position them. But uh, the main one was a, a, you know, the traditional sort of horse-shaped volume. It was about, I think, it was about seven meters high by twenty-five meters in diameter, uh, with a, you know, the opening in the back so the, you know, the camera could come in, um, and it could basically point around two hundred and seventy degrees, any position, and see content on the wall. And um, uh, in the middle of that uh, volume, we had a. 10 ton 6 access motion base um which was operated by uh neil Corbald's company uh so there
0: he had a attack rather well for himself hasn't he oh my <laughs> god i sent him a
2: text the other day three three nominations come on In one three year. out of the five yeah how is I mean, that I, don't, I think that's the hat trick has never been done before
0: should we just like give him it and just say mate? respect anyway go
2: on. Uh, uh, very impressive and all very solid strong production yeah yeah
0: Yeah, totally
2: um anyway so he he, we would have a one of his texts there with a waldo and they could uh, essentially puppeteer the motion base um and he did it to the action plane being played back on the screen so again if you use the example of say a big flak explosion uh popping off right off the the starboard pilot window um you know the 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 special effects technician who was operating the waldo could then jolt the motion base which had the cockpit sitting on it uh to port right so react uh and then essentially jostle the actors um the camera was right there in the action so it would also get jostled and it gave for a far more credible and, and realistic uh, action sequence. So it, you said it, you, you had it, three it,
0: volumes. Was that for yeah. different parts of the plane? Yeah. Or, because you couldn't yeah. have had the whole plane inside a volume.
2: Yeah, we had we. Um, just to back up for a second. So all the exterior shots of the B seventeen were done either at Abingdon Airfield um, or as CG. Um, all the interior work or the 99% of the interior work was done on a stage in, in front of one of these volumes. So in the in the main volume I was just speaking of, uh, we had taken the B-17 and, and sliced it up into different compartments. So on the, that main volume, we had uh, the the cockpit and the nose uh, section sitting on that motion base. And then um, we had another piece that was uh, the, the radio room uh, that was sitting on a smaller base. And then we had the waist and the tail um, sitting on a larger base. Um, and in fact, at one point we had the, the waste, the radio room, the waste and the tail. So two thirds of the plane um, on a large motion base. It was a three axis motion base. So it was just this big flat uh, uh, hydraulic structure which could heave the plane up and down uh, and could roll the plane uh, port or starboard. And it, it, it gave enough of the action for those compartments.
0: I'm, I'm not referring to your work, obviously, but my biggest criticism with um, out the window blue screen shots is even in today with all the experience and knowledge we have, the number of times the focus is wrong yeah. of somebody doing a blue screen comp out a window. I mean, I don't want to like, you know, belittle the artists that work on these things, but like, Oh my God, like it's, you just can't hold focus from like a up on somebody's face in a cockpit way off into the distance and have it a believable intercut with everything that's going on yet the number of times we see those blue so i guess one of the things like it just looked to me like you had that solved and obviously it's a different problem when it's an led outside the window because you have natural focus but then you have other focus that's derived from the the cg that's on the screen if that makes sense because there are two different focuses going on there um but could you talk to that? Because that is just the thing that kills me that the, the what's out the window just looks either soft or not soft, or it's moving with just like, it's fully illuminated inside the cockpit and outside is like bright sun. And I'm like, how'd you get that exposure for crying out loud? <laughs> None of this was a problem with your work. It just sat in there beautifully.
2: Oh, I, I appreciate that. You you obviously missed a few. There were a few stinker shots in there. But... But for the most part, we were pretty diligent about it. We, we didn't get it all, but there were definitely, um, you know, the, having the wall again was pivotal in that uh, effort. So we, you know, if you're on a, let's say, a waste gunner standing at his gun and you pan out his window, um, you're looking at something at the, on the wall. And the, the cameraman knew, you know, okay, well, that's a B-17 about, you know, 300 yards off the port. Off the port uh, side of the of the plane, they they would th- they knew how to throw focus in that sense. We and we would work through that we, at the beginning of the show. Um, we talked about where to put focus, and you know, I, I made a point of always like put it put it to where you would normally go, um, so that it, we weren't always cheating. And um, the, our vendors and were is really that portside
0: at- gunner? Was that portside gunner illuminated by the screen with just yes. some supplemental, or was it all theatrically? Okay, so they were actually being effectively lit by that because it's quite an open hatch at the sides
2: by the screen. And occasionally we would augment with, uh, with additional, uh, artificial light on there. So they might, if they, you'll notice like in some of the shots and I, I actually wish there were more, um, we made a point of trying to contaminate the frame a lot with, the uh, with just light, light glare, light flaring and, and some lens flare, um, trying to just make it a little bit more dirty if you would um, which helped, I think with the realism, but yeah, did for you get the most
0: enough part off the screens for what you wanted. Cause I mean, it's solid sun out of a, no. I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, we, you could, I mean, you could effectively, we, we did augment with, you know, we would occasionally, you know, like stick a 10 tw- K out there, um, you know, just to, to enhance the, the, the sunlight effect. But you could on the screen if you think about it. It's not just playing back sky content, but you could put a direct light source in there, essentially an artificial sun. And the direct and the editor, uh, the DPS really love that because they they could say, you know, I I I just feel like the the shot is too low con. I want a little bit more directional light. So they would literally have. Um, the artists, and we should talk about this. I think you, you asked about it and I skipped over what, how we, what our system was set up like for, for the wall, um, where they could stick essentially a white disc up there and put it at a hundred percent and, you know, essentially be an artificial sun. So it was giving a, a, effectively a a strong bounce, a directional bounce from that side.
0: Because if we were sitting around having a beer before you did this, right? I would have said, well, isn't your biggest concern going to be that the, Everybody knows that America was doing daylight bombing, right? Precision yeah. bombing. That's the point of it. And you're up above the clouds. So that's like harsh sun. And the one thing an LED screen can't give you is harsh sun because it yeah. doesn't give you a parallel beam from yeah. distance like yeah. a soft sun does. If even yeah. a couple of soft suns. So did you fight that at all? Did you have to fix it in post?
2: No. We Again, we would, you know, to, to try and get that intensity, we would aside from putting a you know a, that strong bounce disc off the off this one side and then actually conversely putting negative light we would essentially put a black disc to try and get a little bit more directional uh, uh, contrast to it um, we did augment with some 10k lights uh, occasionally even a little stronger if we needed to just just right off there to to help that action um, on the If you look at the the horseshoe volume, I can send you some pictures. Um, We had additional lights along the ring, the top edge of the the wall, the vertical part of the wall that was just below where the ceiling was. And so we could essentially flip those on as we needed to, to add additional illumination.
0: Because there's a sequence, and I'm not going to give the plot away, but there's a sequence where one of the bombers does what you would describe as more... um, uh, less formation flying uh, I, i'm not giving the plot away to say there's. it's a solo shot of this b17 the point about it is when it banks like that that's mm-hmm. where you really notice the sun coming through the window angle yep. problem because you yep. expect the light to really move around the cockpit and for that matter the the gunners for those um, shots seem to work
2: yeah. yeah for those shots we actually did that using a 10k we actually put it on a crane so we had the the Technocrane uh, i think it was the Techno 25 um, which we would, you know, arm out and then essentially operate to give that effect of the moving light of the plane. So the plane right. itself would be being ro- rolled and pitched and heaved in place. Um, and while that was happening, the the operator of the crane could essentially. So if the plane, for example, rolled to the right, the 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 operator of the crane of the light crane could roll to the left, essentially, to give that that animating light um yeah, so yeah there without,
0: were definitely yeah i'm just saying because it's light that gave me the orientation of what was going on inside the plane if you know what i mean because like when you're outside the plane you can see it relative to the clouds inside it's the way that light is suddenly dramatically changing inside their space that tells you that they're banking effectively yeah yeah i i you skipped over that bit about how you got that set up and let's can we go back to that you, yeah in terms of
2: how we came up with our whole uh wall pipeline um you know we knew we were going to do proxy real-time visual effects using proxy content essentially the, the previous and playing that back the question was you know how to play that back and um, we had lux machina not only design and develop the walls but it also manage the stage which meant that we were taking all the previs uh into their pipeline and they were playing everything back in unreal um and that was great for us because you know unreal is such a such a powerful tool uh and it, it offered the dps and the directors huge amount of interactivity um you know they could we you know it was the first time i've ever seen a dp standing over a computer more than actually standing in front of a camera because they they could actually dynamically direct the lighting and they loved it you know the 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 the, the idea of like an explosion happening here or the sun moving across from to starboard at a certain timing they could just stand over the uh the artist's shoulder the the, the stage operator on real shoulder and work out that timing once they were happy with that it was then on a on a timer essentially it was animated it was keyframed so you could you could work with that or you could just they could do it manually if they wanted to do more freeform style motion but they they loved uh having that interactivity and that was all do to being able to use Unreal Engine.
0: So it wouldn't be me if I didn't bring up digital humans. Uh, (laughs) So so there are shots, obviously, again, not giving any particular plot points away, but there are shots where we see uh, members of the crew jumping out the bomb bay doors with parachutes, but obviously the parachutes aren't open yet. Um, How are you doing those shots? Because we're seeing the actor that's going to the gap to then do this obviously it, it worked and it was a safe way for them to leave the ship but sometimes the ships the planes were not level and obviously they were bailing out because they were in distress um, how did you do those shots and because they drop and then they obviously get picked up by the air and, and fly out of frame as it were
2: yeah those are all digital humans so we we did the, the typical start with the scanning them um, you know we had a we had a photogrammetry booth uh, 108 cameras I think were set up um, and we did full body scan um, in their flight suits, um, and then we did a head scans to get detail if we ever needed to do close ups. But for the most part, we didn't end up getting into close ups. You know, we we would always sell the shot in the interior on the real actor. They would jump, and then the next shot, the reverse would cut to a digi. You know, where that position of that character
0: would have. There been. must have been some digital takeovers because I seem to remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. Um, as you as they're coming down, there were uh some shots, uh, where you'll see them in episode five specifically, where we did actually, uh, our our stunt coordinator Lee Morrison uh went out with some stuntmen in a plane and they had guys in their in their uh the correct uh World War II flight suits and yeah, and and they would jump from the plane with the. With the traditional um, uh, parachutes, which were not the best uh, design, I mean, now parachutes are—you uh, know—I wouldn't say they're totally automatic, but they're—they're—they're they're, they're much more capable. And um, the these these uh, w- war era parachutes uh, were notoriously fickle; they wouldn't always open. Um, they when when they did open, they would spin a lot, uh, so that you know they the the person being held by it would be just twirled around. (laughs) It was a little nutty, but we, we, he actually got some real footage, which, which we, I made a point of putting into the show um, of some of these real stuntmen jumping. Uh, Again, it was, it was a transition from, you know, an interior space to a, to a real person, and ultimately to a digi at at the
0: opportune time. So because the whole series naturally covers, you know, to the end of, ve there must have been other crowds that you needed to create right like crowds in london crowds whatever and for that matter i imagine a bunch of environment work just to because even if you could find a street in london that didn't have modern stuff all over it you had to put a huge amount of bomb debris in there or what was the situation there
2: yeah we had quite a lot of environment extensions there's actually something we should talk about because you know I, i haven't heard other shows discuss this but just a, a quick digression and i'll come back to the main question which is we were doing this all during covid the height of covid and um what that meant was that the idea of going to a location originally the show was going to go to europe for certain environments you know we were we were shooting going to shoot in belgium we were going to shoot um in germany in certain you know villages and so forth but that was all off the table because of covid so in the end we needed to do these extensions. Uh, the art department was basically told, you know, we're going to find some locale on a, in local to our stages. Uh, it turned out just being this, this uh, abandoned airfield. Um, and they would build partial sets. And, um, you know, an example would be that you'll see in the later episodes, we end up in Stalag Luft, um, um, you know, the prisoner war camps. And they build four buildings there, um, and we we had a number of extras. But for the most part, we needed to populate these camps with thousands of, of uh, POWs. So, so there was quite a lot of, of, of crowd replication that went into all those camps that you see, the shots of camps, and that's over multiple episodes. Um, certainly in terms of the environment extensions, um, same thing where we had to not only alter the environments to look um, or extend or alter the environments to look like they were European environments um, German villages that you know the the art department built you know a block and then we would make it look like multiple blocks and then populate with military and and also just civilians um, there's a scene in episode 9 where you're seeing sort of the end of the war and there's lots of people on the roads. This was a, a moment called the Great March, um, historical, um devastating time in, in the war at the end of the war, uh, where tens of thousands of people died actually. Um, and we needed to to replicate um the, those environments, those with, with Digi's as well as extending the environments themselves. Um so there was quite a lot of of duplication and extension work that we had to do in the in the latter half of the show, as you'll see.
0: So that brings up an interesting question. Like there are like the, the the March type stuff, there's huge numbers of people that obviously would not make sense to hire extras. But from a COVID perspective, even a medium complex shot that would be kind of easy to not easy, but like, you know, be able to be done of say there is train sequences where they see um poor souls being uh presumably um, sent to sort of Auschwitz type concentration camps. Yeah, yeah. But like like that would present a COVID problem because there was tons of people naturally jammed in and both those that are observing and those that are witnessing and those that were suffering. Like yep. there were a lot of people in those shots. Were they all having to be, uh, how'd you handle that with COVID?
2: Well, we had, um, you know, the, the general process was that, You wake up every morning, you answer some questions such as, do you have a fever? Are you feeling ill? You drive to work, you park at the parking lot. You're met by a security guard uh, who takes your temperature. And if you're good, you go over to a a, a tent and you get a PCR test and a red wristband. (laughs) Then you're told to go back to your car and wait an hour and a half uh, until you get the text saying you're good to come and get your green wristband and start work. That wasn't just for the crew. That was for all the extras that we had and all the, all the actors. So, I like, so every forth, so.
0: day you'd have to sit in your car for an hour and a half before you could yeah. get on set? Did yep. you, like, set up a review station in your car? What were you doing in your car? Oh,
2: oh yeah. we. Ha- I had my laptop up and I was <laughs> – I was connected with the with the building internet or wherever you know the, if we were on location they always made sure that that yeah. was out there but yeah I was uh I was able to be productive um sometimes I would sneak into the building uh
0: da- at the back door <laughs>
2: but but
0: for the most part
2: you know you're waiting for that green that text and that green wristband to, to start work then you're Steven um, did,
0: did you get covid during the production n- No I I was actually So very it was yeah it it did it was you know
2: I would say, I I don't know what the statistics are on this, but I would say that from anecdotally, most of the people that did get COVID who were on the show usually came from some weekend excursion, you know, where, you know, and and it it became sort of known like, you know, Monday morning, okay, there's going to be an outbreak because somebody was out, you know, some group was out partying uh, the weekend, you know, the previous weekend. And, you know, it was interesting in, in, at that time, this is 2021, Um, most of the people were not vaccinated at that time. So there was quite a bit of sort of collateral stress that went along with the process. Um, And, um, you know, there was contact tracing. So if, for example, the third AD um, ended up with COVID Monday morning, the entire AD department was sent home um, because they had that half hour morning meeting on Monday morning and, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the test comes back and, you know, the likelihood, even though everybody is asymptomatic, you know, or probably came nowhere near that because they were in that group, they would be sent home and that would be a 10 day, 10 day shutdown for that department. And of course the AD department is sort of key to the process, but,
0: so, but that's the way, it,
2: that's the way it rolled. And we just, we just went with it.
0: So from a production point of view, the COVID factor must have basically hit every department. And it seems like if every department's got a problem, like, for example, I can't use this actor today because he's, he's off, then visual effects seems to be the next thing that you would go to, right? You'd be like, Mm -hmm. well, I can't, I need to face swap this guy, or I need to put a building here. or I need to, I can't get this actor to come back or do whatever. So that must have hugely changed the variety of shots. I mean, away from the stuff we've already discussed, there must've been a lot of extra stuff there, that maybe wasn't on the drawing board initially.
2: Absolutely, and that's partly why the the scope of our work or the the, the count of our, our work grew so much. Um, you know, there inevitably as there were outbreaks and shutdowns, the schedules would extend, uh, but but you wouldn't ever be able to really catch up. So yeah, stuff would get heaped over into the visual effects plate, and we had to deal with it in the end.
0: So just give us a timeline, like the series is going to air now and it's, as we speak, it's only just had the first couple of eps come out. I believe we're talking about 21 when you're sitting in your car for an hour and a half, how, how long, um, like how long did filming take? It must've taken a farewell. And then how long did you have in post?
2: Yeah, originally, um, it was, uh, 18 to 24 month schedule. Uh, we ended up, I ended up being 33 months on the project. So, um, we had, we started in January, December of 20. I came out on January 21, uh, in early prep. And I have to say, just as a side note, the production value that you see from the show. And I think, uh, I think, you know, most of the audience will agree with this, that the, it feels that the show feels big. It feels grand. Oh, God, yeah. It feels, it Absolutely. feels rich. And that's largely, the production value that all the departments brought right the art department costume hair makeup special effects stunts and you know they they all brought their a-game to it and and it shows and i think that was because we had a proper prep so in january through the start we were which was i believe may of 21 uh we had we had daily meetings. Everybody was very collaborative. There was a lot of good experience. People who had big show experience and on it, and you know, as a result, you know, there were no real egos. Everybody was very collaborative. Um, and we had a, we had an excellent prep. But so we started shooting in in May, I believe, of twenty one. Um, and then you know, even though we're wearing masks every day, and you know, we're getting tested. And by the way, we wear masks whether we're inside or outside. So if we were on an airfield and You know, we just had the vastness of an era. You're still wearing a mask, and we had the COVID mind, the COVID team, the minders that would come up if you if you're having a conversation with somebody and you you start nudging your mask down because you're trying to to articulate uh, some some discussion about some important point. They would come over and put your mask back on. One of the interesting things about COVID, as you got into post production, was that you had uh, for the first time. an artist base that was working entirely from home um, which I had never encountered nobody had ever encountered before you know typically you know when you're when you're working in visual effects you're completely reliant on the the neighbors that your name your artist neighbor that's around you you know somebody is like I'm stuck this is not working how do I do this or what did Steven say about this it's not right and uh, how do I how do I get it to look you know, how do I get the lighting or I need to match what this guy did over there. There's, there's continual banter all day long uh, within the vendors, right? They're having their artist vendors, but also um, as a supervisor on the production side, I'm having that banter with a whole group of people um, directly. I'm often going to visit them on, on the location, wherever they are. And we had, we had vendors all over the world for this show, but, I couldn't do that you know you'd go and the offices were empty right and you had every artist working from home and not you know just by nature not being the most productive um you know you just you just can't get that type of momentum from working from home so it is an interesting situation which i think going forward i'm not sure how the next set of shows are going to work in terms of the remote you know work remote lifestyle i think it's it's probably okay if you're experienced artists and you're self motivated but for the most part anybody who is up and coming and and you know needs to learn from their peers it, they're going to really struggle
0: yeah i think i think it was best if you had a team that was already used to working with each other so if you knew somebody and then you were having to deal with them over zoom then you know the fact that you knew them the fact that they they had that kind of shorthand facilitated stuff it was when you had teams that had never worked together especially younger artists that were coming in that hadn't got the kind of lay of the land and then were trying to figure that out I think that was very hard on them in COVID yeah Um, I found if it was an established team and it fragmented well then everyone kind of knew everybody enough to write it but when it was people that had never worked together you just don't get enough out of a zoom call to make those kind of bonds
2: Yeah, especially when you're on Zoom calls day and night. You know, if you think about it, you're on with India, it's 14 and a half hours the other direction or whatever. It's you know, it's just not it it's tiring, people are not focused, you know, it's 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 hard to 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 build that sort of artistic collaboration. Um so I think something needs to change going forward. I'm not sure if we'll ever get back to everybody in office um type of uh, of paradigm, but I think that. Uh, maybe it's better management. Yeah. You know, as the, as outbreaks came, we started, the schedule started to slip a little bit. Um, we had originally, we had four sets of directors. Uh, the first director, Kerry Fukunaga did EPS one through four. Um, and then we had uh, Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden doing EPS five and six. D Reese doing F seven and nine and then, um, uh, Tim Ben Patton doing not uh, up nine. Um, did, sorry. So D, I, sorry. D, 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 D. Reese did seven and eight. And I think I might've right. said nine. Um, and then, sorry, uh, um, Tim Ben Patton did, did nine. And, you know, they were all sort of blocked out. Okay. F- one will finish 2 We'll start block. Two will start. Then block three will go. And as the schedule drifted, um, we started to overlap schedules so that that also complicated things in that all the departments, including my own, we had to hire more people to to cover multiple um, sets of director blocks, essentially. So, you know, three and four are still shooting and five is ramping up. There's two different sets of directors and they all want different things. Uh, It it was crazy. So we we ended up we were going to originally scheduled to finish in the fall of 21 we ended up uh wrapping just a few days before christmas of 21 and then i actually i came back in january of 22 just to do some cleanup work for a couple weeks so all told it was about a year of shooting um and then we went right into post and that wrapped in september of 23 so, you must yeah. have had
0: a heck of a VFX editing team. I mean, VFX editors don't get enough credit, in my opinion. But like oh, yeah. managing that volume of stuff and finding what you need out of like what would be hours and hours of material must have been. I mean, I know yeah. it's all semi-automated, but nevertheless, VFX editors are like unsung heroes, in my opinion.
2: Oh, I totally agree. And um, you know, I had I was extraordinarily fortunate. I had um, I had three editors. My principal editor, senior editor, was PJ Harling, who is a Brit who um, they wanted to let have him, you know, once we moved to the post and we we're going back to LA, they were ready to to say goodbye, but I, I, I clung to him because he was so invaluable um, in terms of we really, if you think about it, you have four sets of directors and they know their episodes, but PJ was really the, one of the few people who knew the entire show from an editorial standpoint. Um, by the way, just for, again, for, for the listeners um, understanding. So each director would have their own editor uh, con- assembling the show. Um, so they would work, you know, Ryan and Anna had their editor doing episodes five and six, but they didn't have any crossover with the other episodes. Um, PJ was the only one who knew all the episodes, um, not only the, the material that we shot, but all the research material, um, which was again, invaluable in understanding how, uh, you know how to how to assemble and and construct these scenes so that they were, again, not just technically accurate but historically faithful. And so he 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 was invaluable. He he stayed with me uh, really from beginning to end. Um, I had uh, another couple editors, Rob Crowd. And Linda, who uh, they they came in into post sort of halfway through our show just to support PJ, but they they held up a lot of the volume day to day, just helping us manage all the the flow from the vendors and and getting it over to editorial.
0: I guess one of the great things, I mean, I I, I love the show to death, but one of the great things must have been, from your point of view, is that it wasn't a sequel. In a sense, what you've got is the originality of doing something new. You're not just doing what you've done before. It's not like there was a lot of aerial footage in Band of Brothers that I can remember, Mm -hmm. but with the pedigree of knowing the sort of quality level that is going to be delivered and that, you know, such an impactful uh, pedigree as, you know, Band of Brothers and, of course, Pacific. These are, like, spectacularly good, but you're not having to copy them, right? So you get to do great quality work but it's not like you're following somebody else's template it just seemed to me like a really interesting project from your personal point of view
2: yeah absolutely and i i think there's i have seen some people commenting and the expectation is oh we want band we want a air war version of band of brothers and from our perspective we we had no intention of doing that we wanted i'm to, not really sure what to answers, create something that it was, was definitely um, you know more original in, in the of sense art. of Daily and and, well. and frankly, um, more tangible in the sense of what the uh, airmen went through, and um, from their perspective in in the battle sequences, and also just you know the stress of of trying to um, sacrifice for them, um, sacrifice for the country, and sacrifice for the world, for that matter. Um, I think that was a, sort of a message that. I think will eventually come through that it was something that we we often I think in this day and age lose the sight of you know that that there's the the need to sacrifice um your your well-being, your your potentially your life um for the sake of something that's more important.
0: Yeah, I mean there's no doubt about it. The uh the uh the sense of both the futility of war but also the honor and camaraderie from the airmen is what one of the things that makes it most compelling right like it's not yeah. it's not a uh, it's a depressing period in many respects and a incredibly uplifting period uh, in many others this makes it vastly interesting to uh to mine um, in fact my wife actually said to me it's like I really wanted to know more about this or that and I was like gosh if only someone had written a book or something about the second World War because that seemed such an interesting period <laughs> But the reality is, yeah, you were producing stuff that was wanting me to find out more about uh, what had happened, just because it is so uh, engaging and interesting. So, look, we've run out of time, but congratulations, because it's just a cracking thing um, and just enormous. I mean, like as we said, five hours and uh, just like the the number of shots, it's just it dwarfs a normal film, and uh, I don't know how it, you. Could do- yeah, it
2: was like doing three movies back to back.
0: <laughs> was, uh, yeah. It was, it was, and actually
2: sometimes on top of each other, you know, for that matter. <laughs> it was a little nutty.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for taking time out to uh, share. So, thank you. my humble apologies that it's taken 1,000 podcasts to get you on, but what a cracking <laughs> 1,000 it was. <laughs>
2: Oh, well done on 1,000. That's uh, that's that's an accomplishment as, it, as as it is, right? I mean, how, wow. how on earth have you done 1,000 podcasts? You have to be probably 80 years old by now, Mike.
0: Yeah, I am actually, yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, thanks for underlining my age. I appreciate that, my friend. I'll, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay, take care.
1: Well, thanks, Stephen, for taking the time to chat with us. As I mentioned earlier, I really, really do appreciate the time that everyone takes to talk with us and be interviewed by mike for the podcast and finally a big thanks to those of you our listeners Um, you really are the reason we keep doing it Uh, the fx podcast and all our podcasts are really popular and without that um, you know we obviously wouldn't want to do it so we really appreciate the support from you if you ever want to get in touch with us let us know drop us a line via the contact link on the homepage. we'd love to hear from you the email goes both to mike and i And uh, we'll respond directly. We love hearing from you. Well, that's it for this week. For my friend and business partner, Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening.
0: Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.